you talking to me? Oh, your, your laptop's at full yoga, so if you did yoga. I can't, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you would, go ahead and turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. I'm not sure if this is going to work or not. I had, uh, I, I'm always leery about relying on a laptop or whatever it is, but I'm a paper kind of guy. Um, in fact, I've never, I've used a laptop a couple times, you know, for notes and stuff like that, but I've always had a backup just in case because there's always something about it I just never have, and I don't know, anyway. Um, I might use both. Anyway, Psalm 110, uh, let's do this like we normally do. We can go ahead and um, I'll read the, the heading to it, and then uh, Pastor Brinker can read the first verse, and we'll just go around. Um, everybody might get uh, a shot at uh, reading here. We'll have some other passages we're going to go to later, though, and so uh, we'll have some more reading. But All right, this is Psalm 110. It is a psalm of David. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of thy of holiness from the womb of, thy, of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the place with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. All right, perfect number this morning. All right. Let's go ahead and pray uh, quickly here, and then we'll jump in. All right, Father, this morning we, uh, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here. Thank you for safety. Thank you for... Uh, just the Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you for your word, pray, and we pray that you'd help us now as we look at this passage of Scripture and uh, others that reflect upon it. Uh, please help us uh, now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110. This, uh, I'm not sure that I can verify it. Sometimes these numbers are not the easiest to verify, okay? But this psalm is said to be quoted or referred to, because sometimes they're not direct quotes, they're just allusions to things and that, but it, this, this psalm is said to be the most frequently referred to Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So if that's true, uh, I can't necessarily prove it, but it is, it is referred to a number of times and in a number of places in the New Testament, or parts of it anyway. Uh, if that's true, there is obviously some significance to that uh, portion of the Old Testament that is the most referred to in the New Testament. I'd, I'd say that that has some significance to it. Obviously, there is a special theme, a special emphasis in this psalm. And if you remember uh, on some of the other occasions when we talked about um, the psalms in a, in a general way and the kinds of psalms that there are in that. 
uh, without going back through listing of all those, what would you say, what kind of psalm would you say this is? There's probably several different words you could use, but what kind of psalm do you think this is? You think this is just a, a psalm of, of worship, of praise? Uh, all right, it's definitely a prophetic psalm. It's a psalm of prophecy, but then specifically, uh, it's a messianic psalm. All right, so when you put those two together, this is a psalm that is really one of the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And when you think about it in that light, that makes sense that this might be the most referred to uh, passage in the Old Testament that's referred to in the New Testament. And so uh, this, uh, there's, there's a lot of things about this. Now, now, let's step back for a second and just think about this, all right? When in, in the days that the Lord Jesus was here on the earth, in His first coming, all right, um, there was a lot of Scripture in the Old Testament that obviously pointed to that. And uh, there were different people that knew, or in some cases thought they knew, uh, different things about the Christ or the Messiah. Basically, those two words are equal, right? Messiah, Christ. Um, but, and, and, and by the way, doesn't the book of John tell us that believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that's, that's essential or that's kind of equivalent in, in John 20, to salvation, to having eternal life, so the right belief of Jesus. All right, so obviously this is important, but um, from, from the beginning, okay, there were, you can, as you read the Gospels, there are instances that come up that either say, uh, you know, people saw something and they thought about an Old Testament scripture, right? Um, for instance, um, uh, when the, the first time in John 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, drove the, the, the crooks out of the temple, all right, uh, it says after that, John records that, that later, all right, his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, which is a quote from another psalm. Um, so in other words, there's, we see occasions like that. Okay, that people had that. But what I'm getting at is this, that even in that day, uh, and really it's true today, by the way, uh, that many people, many people that you would think have the opportunity to know Scripture, in other words, they've been raised in church, they, you know, they have the, a church background and, and have been around the Bible, Bible teaching and so on. Uh, and in that day, for instance, you know, the Jewish Folks, all right. Uh, they had they had this background, but it was but they were still sketchy with it. I mean, the all the apostles, all right. I mean, as as they were following the Lord Jesus, they still had many misconceptions about what was going on and what he was going to do, uh, and so on. And uh, when you think about that, sometimes I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I think why? Well, you know. There's a number of reasons for that. From our perspective today, obviously, it's a lot clearer. You know, they say 20, or hindsight's 2020 vision. Uh, so looking back is always perhaps more, you know, easier to see the clear picture. Oh, yeah, 
than looking ahead or even looking around at the time. All right, but but consider this. All right, when we, when you think about the Old Testament, um, and uh, you think about well, let me let me let me just interject this right here. But there are other instances where people definitely knew specifics about the Messiah. One thing that readily comes to mind is when the Magi came, you know, they saw the star, of course, that, that they saw it at Christ's birth, they get there later, but um, they go to Herod and asking, where is he that was born king of the Jews, right? What does Herod do? He calls the Jewish leaders, all right, the scribes and, and so on, and asks them, where's, you know, the one that's to be born king of the Jews, where's he supposed to be born? They tell him, exactly, Bethlehem. Then they quote, they, they reference Micah chapter 5, verse 2, right? Do what? <laughs> My computer's scaring me. Um, <laughs> scares me too. But anyway, uh, that's why it's over there. Um, well, uh, but, and they, they reference the exact passage. So the point is, there were certain things that they readily knew, but yet, other things that they obviously didn't get, and some of that might be because, like people today, they have preconceptions as to what things should be. I mean, the typical Jewish person in that first century, it seems, had a very, very difficult time accepting that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to have to suffer going to have to die. And again, we, from our perspective, we look back and we, you know, we read Isaiah 53 and you think, Psalm 22, I mean, it, it's very clear, right? But again, you know, when, you, when we put ourselves in their shoes, it might be slightly different. But the point is, there are a number of things, okay? And, and th this is a, a, you know, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, whether it's in the book of Psalms or anywhere else in the New Testament, have been uh, lumped into four types, four types of prophecies about the Messiah. And this makes sense if you think about this, okay? Uh, and the first type is what's called first coming only prophecies. There are some portions of the Old Testament when they prophesy about the Messiah, they only speak of things that have to do with Messiah or Jesus' first coming. For instance, one example is that passage I, I already referenced in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, about where he would be born, all right? Um, then secondly, there's, there's passages, prophetic passages in the Old Testament that only reference something about the second coming of Christ, all right? So there's first coming only, there's second coming only, uh, and there's a lot of those as well. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 is an example there. Um, but then, the third type, there are uh, Old Testament prophecies, and this is where it gets confusing to people, that incorporate elements of both. And not necessarily in a manner that everybody, you know, like again, today, looking back, we, it makes more sense, but at the time, blended them, seemingly, so that people thought that, okay, yeah, it says that, but he's going to do this. And then sometimes the, the more desired aspect of that takes precedence in their minds, right? I mean, 
That happens to us in, in things as well. All right, then there's a fourth uh, type of messianic prophecy, and our psalm today falls into this category, but that is, uh, those are prophecies that um, uh, encompass what's called the entire redemptive career of Messiah. In other words, and there's four aspects of that that have to be met for that to be the case, all right? It touches on His first coming. It touches also on an interval of time. And it touches, thirdly, on His second coming. And it touches on the millennial or the messianic kingdom, all right? And the biggest confusing part of that in many of those prophecies is the lack of presentation in, in many of those prophecies of an interval of time between the first and second comings. Again, from our perspective, we, we, we look back and we see we, we, have the, we have all of the Scripture, we have the New Testament that sheds a lot of light on the Old Testament, right? I mean, if all we had was the Old Testament, it, we could probably be pretty confused as well. But thankfully, we have the, the entire Word of God. Uh, but, but when you think of things in that way and, and think of, okay, yeah, there are those different types, it makes more sense why some people would be confused. Again, we have the advantage of looking back. We have the advantage of all of Scripture, all right, that uh, many people for many years did not have. And uh, this is certainly a reason why many missed or overlooked or misunderstood things about Christ. And when you think about this, even in those prophecies, all right, uh, in any given passage that, that makes a prophetic statement about Christ, there's a variety of Messiah's ministry aspects that are involved. Uh, for instance, Isaiah 61 talks about it, uh, and that passage would fall into the category of number three there, the both, it mixes first and second coming, uh, without, without uh, you know, stating that there's an interval of time between them. But it, it's the passage Jesus actually read in a synagogue there in Nazareth where he talked about coming to heal and all this stuff. And then uh, later on in the passage, it talks about his second coming. Uh, Jesus stopped his reading before that, by the way, in, when he read that in the synagogue. Um, but, uh, in fact, he stopped reading and said that this day, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And, uh, but, but again, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's a variety of, of things of Messiah's ministry that are presented. And again, there's probably no one passage that presents it all. You know, so, and then secondly... And this, I think, is the biggest confusing point, and even for a lot of people today, is there's a variety of, uh, I just worded it this way, there's a variety of presentation on the Messiah's person. All right, when we have, when we put everything together, and we have the New Testament, of course, and all of this, it's easy for us, hopefully, to see that the Messiah, that Christ, has to be both God and and man. There are many passages that you can easily see, okay, Messiah is a man because of what happens, all right? He, particularly when you think of Isaiah 53, I mean, he has to suffer and die. That has to be man. God can't die, all right? Um, uh, but then also there are passages that clearly uh, seem to refer that Messiah has to be God. Our passage today is a passage that demonstrates both. And again, this is, this is a, 
this is a great messianic passage here in Psalm 110. So when you, when you think about messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, there's that, that whole variety of things that we have to keep in mind if we're going to understand you know, the Bible correctly, come to the right conclusions on things, and so on. And when you think of the Psalms, Messianic Psalms, all right, Messianic or prophetic Psalms are no different than the rest of, for the most part, are no, no, no different than uh, Messianic prophecies in the rest of the Old Testament. In other words, they're going to fall into one of those four types as well. Um, and again, this Psalm falls into the fourth category because it gives us basically some indication. Now, it has more of an emphasis on on two of them at least, than it does on all four of them. But there's, you can see all four aspects, his first coming, the interval of time, and second coming in Messianic kingdom. You can see all of that uh, to some degree referenced in this particular psalm here. And so uh, let, me, let me mention this too, because a lot of times when you start talking about things like this, some people might be thinking, okay, what's the, what's the purpose of talking about all these different technical points of prophecy and all of this. Is there any real value other than just trivial information? Well, number one, it's not trivial information, all right? It is Scripture, and we should be desirous to learn Scripture. And it's important if we're going to rightly divide the Word of God that we understand these various aspects, all right? But, but secondly, let's, let's do this, take a few minutes and do this. We might not get through this today, so... Not a, I was already expecting that, but um, so 2 Timothy 2.15, everybody's familiar with that, uh, study the show thyself, proved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But let's go to uh, Luke 24 real quick. Luke chapter 24, I want to show you two examples of the practicality and importance of understanding Bible prophecy, particularly messianic prophecy of the Old Testament, all right? Luke chapter 24, you're familiar with these passages. Luke 24, of course, is in Luke's account, the resurrection chapter, right? And in verse 13, uh, this is the account where two uh, are on the road to Emmaus. The Lord Jesus kind of, he's already resurrected that morning. He kind of catches up to them engages in conversation with them and so on. Everybody's familiar with that, right? I don't want to read the entire passage here, but if you jump down, uh, what verse did I put there? Look at verse 27. This is as they've been talking for a while, right? Uh, and he, he, you know, they're, they're just throwing things back and forth. You know, we just don't get it. We thought this and all of this, all right? And so here in verse 27, this is Jesus' response. All right, he says, in beginning at, the Bible says, in beginning at Moses, now that doesn't mean the man Moses per se, but the books of Moses, all right, so the Torah, the law, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what did Jesus do? He went back through the scriptures and said, This. And then, oh, yeah, makes sense. All right? Look later in, in the chapter here in verse 44. All right? This is later that same day. Jesus now has appeared in the room with the uh, 
ten apostles present. There's probably some other people here as well, but we know Judas, of course, isn't there. He's hung himself, and uh, Thomas is not present on that day. It's a week later, Thomas is present for the first time with them, with Jesus, all right? But uh, in, after he's, he's made himself known unto them and so on, he's, he's said, you know, touch me, handle me. I mean, he's, he's resurrected bodily, literally. He even eats something in front of them, all right? Obviously, a spirit is not going to eat uh, and so on. All right, now verse 44, this is in, in that meeting. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. All right, so again, throughout the entire New Testament, there is all of these things that God had revealed that they pointed to the Messiah, they pointed to Christ, pointed to Jesus, right? Then verse 45 is important as well. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. All right? So it's like one of those light bulb moments, right? Ah, it makes sense now. Well, could it have made sense before? You would think it should have been able to, all right? Um, and there's, again, multitudes of reasons perhaps why not, but my point of bringing that out right now is this, okay? Why is that important? Well, you see that example of Jesus going back and saying, okay, look at the, look at the Old Testament, and just walking through what the Old Testament says about Messiah, right? Ah, you realize that's the pattern that the apostles followed in their ministries, that's in their evangelism, all right, which is unheard of for the most part today. But so one other example of that, just to show you uh, this here. Now, act, go to Acts chapter 17. And again, this is probably a familiar passage, but just to point out this particular aspect of this, Acts chapter 17. This is an account of Paul's ministry in the city of Thessalonica, all right, which, you know, we know some other things about Thessalonica in that. Acts chapter 17 actually is a good chapter for that particular subject of evangelism because you see Paul in different scenarios with different people. His approach is different. It's, it's not a cookie-cutter approach to everybody, um, but look at what he does here. This is um, in the synagogue... All right, in Thessalonica, Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, this was his pattern, this was his habit, right? Went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now let me just stop for a second and say something here. This is not something that you or I are, are going to be able to do. All right, this was for Paul and, and the other, Peter, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he, he wouldn't have been able to do this. Consider Paul, his background. Paul, basically, you could say he was a rabbi. He had the credentials to walk into a Jewish synagogue and teach. All right, Peter didn't have that. Did he know the scriptures, you know, at, you know after and so on? And could he have as, as far as ability? Yeah. 
but he didn't have the credentials. What I'm saying is Paul took advantage of his circumstances, his background, opportunities that God afforded him, and this was his pattern. He went into a town. If there was a Jewish synagogue there, he went to the synagogue. He was a Jew. He was a, you know, he was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He had, he had credentials that could get him in. You know, it's kind of like pulling out the badge, you know. It gets you in places that just you or I can't go, all right? And um, now that wouldn't work for us because, number one, we're not Jews. We wouldn't be allowed in. And, and anyway, um, but this is what he does. But notice, okay, after he's in there, it says he, he reasoned with them three Sabbath days. Now, a Sabbath happens how often? Once a week. So this was over the course of three weeks. So this was not a... 15-minute presentation here. This is a three-week period of time. Paul goes back to the synagogue, and he continues reasoning with them out of the Scriptures. All right? Now, notice reasoning with them. In other words, he's presenting them to him, showing the evidence. And he's not, you know, uh, obviously starting fights with them and arguing but he's reasoning with them out of the Scriptures. Now, it comes to a point where people make decisions, and maybe you would say fights happen, okay? But that wasn't Paul's purpose, right? And, and, and um, verse 3, he's reasoning with them out of the Scriptures, verse 2, then opening and alleging. So he's reasoning, he's opening. So in other words, he's expounding the Scriptures and alleging. He's making a conclusion of what these Scriptures are saying, what is, he, what is he concluding? That Christ, the Messiah, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. All right, now stop for a second. That's what he's showing them out of the Old Testament. That Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer. He had to be killed. He had to raise again the third day. Again, for us, looking back, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we, we understand that. We've been told that all of our lives. That wasn't the case for them, right? So he's, he's showing them from their scriptures, this is what your scriptures say. And it makes sense. He's laying it out, right? But then he goes a step further, and this is the part that brings contention, by the way. right? Notice, he then says, lost my place, um, that, okay, and opening alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So in other words, this Jesus, the man, and, and they, they had enough understanding probably, it was still recent somewhat history, I mean, this is years after, but, you know, and there were other people named Jesus, okay? But this Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's where the contention comes, okay? Sure, you can tell. This is what the Bible says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, but when you bring it to the point, this Jesus here, he is that, all right? And the other apostles and so on who, who personally spent time with the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, they... they were eyewitnesses of those things. That was part of the whole point of what an apostle was. He, was an, he actually saw with his eyes, heard with his ears these things, saw them happening. And they were special witnesses because of that. All right? And remember, Jesus told 
them in that upper room back in Luke 24 that we looked at. Uh, I didn't read that far, all right, in that passage. But down in verse 48 of that passage, he tells them, ye are witnesses of these things, all right? Um, and so uh, this is what Paul's doing. This was his manner of evangelism. Later, we have an example of him in Athens. He doesn't use the Old Testament scriptures. He appeals to something else and then starts bringing them up to speed about God. He starts with creation, really. And, and, you know, there are some people that need to be started there. And more and more so in our society today, because our society is far more biblically illiterate and so on than it was when we were young. I mean, um, at least in my recollection, I would say America uh, 45, 50 years ago was, you know, still somewhat of a God-fearing nation. People didn't, you know, do certain things because there was a fear of God. I'm not saying everybody was saved and far from that, but there were still things that, you know, were, if you want to use the word taboo, because, you know, nowadays the floodgates are open and it's only going to get worse. But, but the whole point of this, what I'm getting at is, what, how, you know, they had to be prepared in order to deal with people evangelistically like that, they had to know the scriptures themselves. They had to understand how it fit together, all right? Uh, and so it is. There is a very practical value uh, in all of that. So as we, let's jump in, all right, back into Psalm 110. And again, there's a number of aspects of the psalm that there's no way we have time to finish it all this morning. And there's some of these, if we, if we, uh, dwelt much, particularly like verse 4 about Melchizedek and stuff like this. I mean, we, we, we could deal with that for a long time, all right? And so uh, we'll not necessarily be doing that. We'll talk about it a little bit perhaps. But Psalm 110, the, the text of this passage of Scripture, again, it's a Psalm of David, and that is important here particularly, I think, is one of the reasons why this is specified to us because... Uh, understanding that this was David, the king. Now think about this for a second. Who, who was King David? All right? David, he was king. He had, I mean, uh, and we've talked about David and some of the other things in his life and, and all this, but when he became king, and after he was king for some time, this psalm was likely written later in David's life. All right? But uh, he had a lot of experience behind him. He had warred. In fact, you realize in David's time, he was, he was the king of Israel. There were, you know, uh, besides like Absalom and, and that temporary revolt, things of that. I mean, there was no questioning. He was the sovereign of Israel, right? Um, but you realize that even beyond that, all the nations that surrounded Israel were subject to him. He was, I mean, in other words, all the nations were subservient to Israel at that time. Not necessarily, you know, as far as like Babylon and all that, but all the nations around them were subservient to them. And that's very evident when you see Solomon reigning, and it specifies all the, all the taxes, the tribute that these people brought to him. It always is interesting to me that the amount of gold that was brought to Solomon in a year was 666 talents of gold. That's, I've always wondered why that number, but that's, that's an interesting thing uh, when you think about it. But, uh, but the point is, it was a lot, all right? 
and, and of course, that particular number. But, um, but that demonstrates the power that Israel had at that time as a nation, as a people. And God promised David, right, that Davidic covenant, that David would not fail to have a man sitting on the throne. And, as, and he did say that as long as, you know, if they disobey me, get out of line, I'll have to punish them. All right? And, and for now, there's been a, quite a period of time that there's been a, a lack, if you want to say, of a, 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 someone of the line of David actually sitting on a physical throne in Jerusalem. But there is someone on a throne, all right, who is the seed of David. But what, what I'm getting at is keep all that in mind when you read this psalm because it's important and it helps it make sense as well. All right, so David had already had this promise from the Lord back in 2 Samuel 7, that Davidic covenant, all this kind of stuff, all right? And now David, it's as if this is an interesting passage because um, when you read it, it's one of those passages. There's others in, in the Bible, uh, Psalm 2 and a little bit, Titus 1 has a, has a portion similar like this, but it's like... The writer, here it's David and Titus, it's Paul and so on. But the writer is like being, it's almost as if he's being allowed to hear a conversation that obviously took place in heaven. You know, it's, it's obviously he wasn't there hearing it, but God revealed it to him, okay? Uh, but David is writing about a conversation here between God the Father and God the Son. And that's, that's obviously important here. David was king and lord over all Israel with surrounding nations subject to him. He had no earthly lord. Keep that in mind as you read this, all right? He was ruler over a Jewish empire, so to speak. He's not writing about himself. He's writing about somebody else that he calls his lord. Now, automatically, somebody may say, well, he's talking about God. He was a man after God's heart. He sought after God and so on. But there's some specifics here that obviously... People need to understand. Verse 1, the Lord said unto my Lord. There's two lords here, all right? It's not like God's sitting around talking to himself, so like I do sometimes, you know, talk to myself. Uh, I've often given the excuse, I'm the only one that listens to me, so I might as well talk, you know. But, um, uh, but the Lord is speaking to the Lord. Now, obviously, you notice the, the way that the... Uh, you wouldn't say they're spelling, but the capitalization and so on here. The Lord said unto my Lord. The Lord, the first one here, and of course it's repeated a number of times down through the psalm. This is Jehovah, right? Uh, and in this case, we would say specifically this is talking about God the Father, right? God the Father said unto my Lord. So who is David calling his Lord? All right, it's a different particular word, name here. Uh, it's still spelled L-O-R-D in English, but it's Adon, Adon, uh, and it, it's the idea of, uh, in fact, this word is not, at times it's used of human beings, but it's clear when it is, okay? Uh, but it's a word that means the master, the, the, the sovereign, uh, the, and obviously translated Lord. Um, it's different than the first one, Okay. Uh, the Lord, all capitals, is, is technically the proper name of, of God, I guess you would say. Uh, but the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he's obviously 
Jehovah is talking to another person, and this person is able to sit beside Jehovah's throne. All right, so again, obviously, it's, there's two persons involved here. And again, this is one of those things, that concept of the Trinity and so on, that a lot of people just, they just trip all over it. They can't, because, and, and we've said before, I mean, it's one of those concepts that it, I don't think in our human minds we can really fully appreciate or understand, all right? Because it goes beyond us. We can't identify we don't live in that realm, all right? And, and you know, God is higher than us. His, his, his ways are higher than us and so on. And if we could understand every little thing about God, he wouldn't be that great, would he? So, um, but God the Father, speaking to God the Son, tells him, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So this one, uh, Jehovah's speaking, he's speaking to another Lord um, but there's a distinction made between the two, but there's obviously also equality because the one is told to sit at the right hand. That wasn't for anybody, just for anybody. There had to be an equal to sit at the right hand. Um, from what I understand, I mean, like when, when in the Old Testament, sometimes you read of uh, kings visiting other kings and so on like this, all right? And the custom was when um, one monarch would visit another monarch, and that, that monarch that is being visited was like on his throne, the other monarch would be given a temporary throne to the right side of that monarch, right? Uh, the only real specified example that, we, that I know of that we find in the scriptures in 1 Kings 2 when Solomon had a seat brought and put at his at the right hand of his throne for his mother, Bathsheba, to sit there. Now, she obviously wasn't the ruler, the monarch, but he looked at her as equal in importance and personage. All right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that they were equal in everything as far as like what they did, but they were equal in importance. And in this case, of course, they're God the Father, God the Son are equal in person, in, in their deity, in who they are, but not necessarily in the, the office that they, they hold or execute. The Son is obviously subservient to the Father in executing the plan of God in this, in this life, all right, in this world. Um, and so the Lord, Jehovah says unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies Thy footstool, all right? So the right hand, and there's a lot of things about this. In fact, uh, there's no way we'll get much through this. So let's go, go over to the book of Hebrews real quick. Book of Hebrews in the New Testament. This particular psalm, although we're not going to read right now a quotation from this psalm necessarily, but you'll... But, We'll see an equal truth, or maybe you so maybe you could call that a, a reference or an allusion to it. But uh, this, the book of Hebrews, refers to this psalm numerous times in its pages. All right, um, in in verse one, chapter one, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And by the way. 
the Old Testament specifies the Son of Jehovah several times. All right? Uh, Psalm 2. Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee. Uh, Psalm 2.7. Um, uh, Proverbs chapter 30 refers to, you know, the, the, uh, the writer of the proverb there is saying, you know, talking about God, do you know his name and do you know his son's name? I paraphrase that a little bit, but uh, reference to, uh, to God's son. Uh, there's other, other times that. So um, it's not like the, the, the father, son, and spirit. You see all three talked about in Isaiah 48, by the way, as well. But it's not like it's a totally New Testament concept. It is very much more clearly presented in the New Testament, yes. But it's not just a New Testament concept. All right? Uh, so here in, in Hebrews uh, 1, hath, the, uh, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, so the Son of God, right? Uh, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now, there's a lot in that verse and, uh, and, and all, but let me just say it this way that every description, there's seven descriptions there basically, and every one of those descriptions can only be true of deity, right? But that deity is the Son, right? And who is it that, according to that, is sat at the right hand? There it doesn't say God's throne, all right? It uses a different expression, but it clearly says that when He had done the work of redemption, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Clearly a reference to you know, having a, a throne, a seat that is at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne of Jehovah. All right? So have that. And it, who is it? It's the Son. All right? So again, when you, when you start looking at these and comparing various uh, scriptures with scriptures, who only can Psalm 110 be talking about? It's, it's clearly talking about David's Lord is God the Son. Now, I'm going to close with this because we probably ought to get closed here. Um, I'm trying to think. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And then next time we can proceed in the psalm more here. Uh, Matthew 22, I've got to find the exact verse here, but, um, okay, down in verse 41. This is during that period, just days before the crucifixion, when, when the Pharisees, scribes, even Sadducees, they're all trying to corner Jesus, right? And that, you know, putting Him into these situations where they're putting Him to the test, trying to, trying to get Him to say something so they can accuse Him. Okay, get him to slip up, so to speak. And verse 41, this is one of those, all right? Uh, they've, they've just uh, 
asked a question here. Then verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, he asked them now, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? It's a fair question, right? They say unto him, the son of David. Of David. So he's David's son. Now here's the, you know, stop for, is that true? According to the Bible. Yeah, because the Messiah was clearly going to be of the lineage of David. Now, for that to be true, by the way, that particular aspect, does that demand that Messiah is God or man? Man. All right? Now, here's the thing. He asked that question. They say the son of David. Now, verse 43. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit? Now, that doesn't mean David was a ghost, but that means by the Spirit. In other words, and, and they understood what that meant, by inspiration of God. Because they, they would have held that Psalm 110 was God's Word. All right? And so he says, How then doth David in spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, call him Lord? So we see here that Jesus says that that Lord that, G, that David's referring to is the Messiah, right? He, uh, how, does, how does David in spirit call him Lord? The Lord said, and then he quotes here, Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And of course, obviously, they don't have the answer. Jesus says, If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? They said he was David's son. The psalm said he's David's Lord. How, how can that be? That is an apparent human contradiction, right? But again, obviously, there's more to that than we can fully understand. Again, we, we, we know that Christ is God incarnate. He became man. He's eternally the Son of God who at a point in time became man. He's not always been man, but he became man. There's a difference in the two. John chapter 1, you look at the wording, all right? Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the, the verb there was, the idea is, as far back as you can go, he already was. But then down in verse 14, says the Word became flesh. So at a point in time... God the Son, who's always existed, with God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son became a man. That's, that's deep stuff. That, that's, that's not the easiest to understand. We need to believe it because it's what the Bible teaches, and there's a lot of things in the Bible about it, okay? But what I'm saying, I mean, it's just like, whoa, that's, that's something, and the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to obviously didn't get that. They missed it, right? So that's, again, you see the point. That's why Paul, when he was evangelizing Jews, he went back to the Old Testament. See this? See this? See this? Because they, they would agree with what that says. But you know what? Look at Jesus, the man. He met all of that. He did all of that. He's the Christ. So they had to believe that that man was God. 
And by the way, the Jewish leaders understood that Jesus claimed to be God. That's what got him in trouble. I mean, on their so-called mock trial before the crucifixion, right? What happened? Well, they're, they're trying to bring false witnesses in to say, he said this, he said this, and, and then finally Caiaphas says, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? You say that I am. And, and the idea is he was assenting to it. And they said, that does it. I mean, so that's why they at least say they crucified him, because he claimed to be God the Son. But they refused to believe it. But it's obviously necessary for one to believe that in order to be saved. But again, we'll, we'll get back to that psalm here again later. This is, this is an amazing psalm, and everything we've talked about is just kind of building the foundation to look at what this psalm says about this Messiah. But this is, this, is, this is good stuff. Anyway, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and that He became man and did the things that He did so that we could have a relationship with You. We have to acknowledge that without Him becoming man and doing what He did, there's no way we can have a relationship with You now. But we thank you for that, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.